and welcome to our first RA Live Exchange. My name is Martha, thank you for being with us. I'm so excited to welcome our guest today, the amazing Rasheen Murphy. Hi Rasheen. Hiya. Thank you for being with us today. Um, how's lockdown life been for you? It's been full of different things really. Um, at first we didn't believe it was happening and um, it took a long time for the full extent of it to sink in. Uh, but I was very creative during the lockdown, lockdown period. I, I almost made it to Ibiza for the lockdown. We as a whole family went to get the very last flight out of the country. And um, I coughed as I got out of the taxi at City Airport and was denied access to the flight. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell us when we, we were at the airport why. They only told me on the phone later. So I ended up having lockdown here in this room. Um, I did a lot of work on Ableton. I'd already set up um, myself on the software a year before uh, because I work a lot now with DJ Coes on my next project and he'd asked me to work in that form because that's the way he works. And so, luckily enough, I was already up and running on that. It's quite new to me. And I was able to continue writing and do a lot of stuff here during lockdown. And I did performances from here. And I did listening parties. And it turned out well, because actually, I've just come back from my beef. I was there for a little while in the summer. And um, they're starting to get heavy again. But they were very heavy in lockdown. And I would have probably been trapped on our compound because I can't drive and stuff. So in a way, it was the it was good that it turned out, but we were devastated. So we thought we were just getting out in time and so on mm. at the time. But loads of stuff happened. We were very creative. Oh, that's good. And um, is this your music room that you're in at home? This, yeah, this is pretty much Mama's room and... Uh, which is a bit mean of me to take the best room, but there you go. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, this is where it all goes off. Here's the microphone. <laughs> in fact, that's not really mic. That's a stand-in mic. I've got a really fancy Sony mic, but it's um, it's been it's been um, what's it called? Looked after at the moment. It's been jizzed back up. So this is where it all happens. Um, well, I'm really looking forward to hearing all about your new record and also kind of your journey so far. So to get us started, would you be able to take us back and share with us your earliest memory connected to sound or music? Oof, my earliest memory. I mean, I really was surrounded by music, people singing constantly. I suppose it would be my father singing. He was just all the time singing. My dad would go into the bath not very often but when he did it was a big big deal and uh, we had a big house big old house but kind of no carpets you know no no central heating and um, so I had a lot of character but didn't have very much hot water so I used to boil up all these massive big pots of water fill the bath up to the brim with scalding hot water get in there two hours <clears throat> sing top of his voice a couple of bottles of wine sometimes in there and just do a show from the bath for the whole neighborhood for like two hours and uh, I think that might be one of the first memories 
<laughs> Sounds like the originator of self-care there. Definitely. Um, tell us a bit about where you grew up. I grew up in a small town in South Ireland, but not too far from Dublin. Uh, and not too small a town either. It was a fair-sized town and an interesting town. It has an interesting history. And when I grew up, it had like near full employment when I was a kid. And it was bonanza time in Arklow. There was loads of industry in Arklow. And um, there was loads of kind of modernity coming in. And it was a very, it was a very exciting time to grow up, strangely. I don't know, it just doesn't sound like the sexiest thing in the world, but it was kind of interesting in that way. And people were, my parents were, were really interesting and their friends were interesting and there was big culture clashes going on between religion and IRA and there was politics in the air and poetry and song and all the classic stuff you know and it was uh, they were really cool people you know they loved music loved it so I was surrounded by music growing up my uncle was a virtuoso musician and had loads of bands had been in the Irish Eurovision Song Contest, had been, I think he was the one of the one that went for Ireland at one time with his own song. But he was a kind of, he could play any instrument. He was pitch perfect. He had the most amazing voice and everything. He was, was too brilliant. So I just never even considered. People used to say to him, oh, give, give her a few lessons, music lessons, and he never had any patience for me. Um, and I just never considered myself a musician, but I, it all was going in, obviously, by kind of an osmosis, I suppose, you know. Everybody was singing, so song, I grew up around song, and song meaning a lot, like everyone had at least two or three songs that they knew from start to finish that they would sing if they were drunk. And so it became that me aunts and my uncles and people that were close to me, they had songs that were in my mind, that are associated with them, that are, that are part of their story, more than anything to do with the songwriter or the original recording or anything. They're connected to those people, my Auntie Linda and my Uncle Jim, and from them just singing all the time. So that's my earliest memories. Mm. So what motivated you to move um, to Manchester and, and why Manchester? Well, I mean... I had no choice. I moved to Manchester with my family when I was 12. And uh, the reason why is we already had family connections in Manchester. My father's sisters lived there. His mother is from there, but we're not supposed to tell people he's half English. <laughs> it's really a shock. It should be a shock for people. I'm quite over English. Um, or eight. What is it? Eight. Yeah. So but there was connections. And so... We had, there was a big uh, recession in Ireland at that time. His father was self-employed. He fit furniture in bars, his, his business. But also, they, my family did a lot of buying and selling of strange things. Like, for example, they brought a... One, one time they brought home a cockpit of a World War II bomber, which had crashed in uh, the Wicklow Hills and put it into the spare room for a while. So things like that. But um, we were hit very hard. All of us were, the whole family, all of, everybody was by a huge recession toward the end of the 80s in Ireland. And everything changed and we had to get into a little white van with everything that we needed and our dog and go to Manchester when I was 12. 
And it should have been horrendous for me, to be honest, but on the face of it, but it was the best thing in the world for me. Mm. Maybe not much for the rest of the family, I don't know, but it was definitely a catalyst for my music fascination and uh, the fact that I got in with a load of weirdos pretty much straight away and then got into really disturbing music quite quickly mm. <laughs> create my identity and so when a few years later my mother went back to Ireland having uh, broke up with my father uh, I decided to, to stay in Manchester for many reasons but really a lot because of the music scene and I was so into the music scene and I'd been going to um, I'd been going to clubs I'd been going to mostly see bands first, um, and then I got into clubs, into the club scene. By the time mm. I was 16, I was off trying to get into the Hacienda, sometimes getting in, sometimes not, always getting <laughs> lots of other clubs whenever I wanted to. And, yeah, it was a brilliant city to absorb exactly what was going on in that present moment, the late mm. 80s, that was. And so... I went from being going to a club that was sort of a psychedelic club, really, was the first club that I went to. And I went very regularly with all my weirdo mates. And it was all like 60s psychedelic and garage rock and also your, your sort of sub-pop and um, Spaceman 3 and Melville... Velvet Underground, yes, um, also the My Bloody Valentine, things like that. And then all of a sudden, one night, you know, they were playing I Am The Resurrection, and there seemed to be a whole new crowd in there, but we're all loving each other. I had no idea why. I really didn't. But, you know, all the weirdos and they're like football sort of casual casuals, like hugging each other, I am the resurrection. And so I really remember that moment, you know. And then I was quite young then. And then after that, it was after that that I really started to get into going to clubs. Mm. But I was more into black clubs and I liked going to places that played hip hop and R&B and rare groove and soul and, uh, you know, some the hip house and things that were, were happening at the time in the beginning and um, because it was just a little bit before rave kicked off when I started going club and I started going club and sort of had to separate myself from the weird lads and I went clubbing with a girl and um, a black girl actually went to college with Zoe and we went all over the, the city together to club clubs to places in my side to blueses to um you know to, to precinct 13 to like there was an amazing um an acid house club as well you know I went to all of them and um, much preferred most of them to the Hacienda actually which was really big and didn't sound that great you know maybe I wasn't there at the right time exactly standing in the right place in the room mm. but also just getting that little bit bigger and that transient thing where people are going from room to room they're never my favorite kind of clubs I like to go into one room close the door and close the world away and it gets sucked you in you know and um, there was plenty of that then and also used to love the blueses and the sound system stuff I went everywhere and you know nothing happened to me I was 16 17 years old somehow 
was all fine and mm. uh, and there wasn't any wasn't anything to do with drugs or anything at that point or anything to do with drinking even it was just like you'd have energy to go out all night anyway uh, on a on a pint of water and um, then the rave came back came in and some of the lads that were the weirdo lads started going raving so the, then I started doing that a little bit, but I never was mad for it. Um, I do remember one, the first one, the best one that I went to, I think it was in Warrington or somewhere, in, the, in a big, massive old warehouse, and Frankie Knuckles played at it, and he dropped at the last minute when the sun was coming up, you know, sometimes I feel, and hands in the air and everything, and that was another amazing moment, but big, big raves too big for me don't like dancing on concrete what's love, your preferred texture i love a wooden floor okay there, are, there has been times i've had good nights dancing on concrete don't don't get me wrong but it takes some serious tunes to get you going on concrete um i love i love a club to sound amazing you know and the, the bigger the place the harder that is mm. Um, it sounds like you had quite a lot of freedom as a teenager. Um, what do you reckon that gave you um, as an artist? Confidence, you know. I mean, I would say that um, what happened was then, you see, I, my mother went back. I was 15 and I stayed with my friend for a little while and his mum. And then the government paid for me to a flat that I found in the area myself paid for it and gave me some money every week and that is the greatest privilege I've ever had it really was um, to have that for three years of your life at that point to be able to go it alone it was just amazing and you as far as I know you can't do that now because you can't get um, housing benefit until you're much much older than that so I found a flat and I found and it was like a lovely flat, you know, I was in an old Victorian house, tiled hallway, and you go in, and I, it was a shared hallway and a shared bathroom, and I had a huge big bedroom, a bit like this room, and then I had a back room with a semi, with an orange semicircle couch in it, can you imagine how cool that was? And that, that room, the kitchen went, and the kitchen after it went out onto this beautiful garden, and I had an outside toilet that was my own. <laughs> that was hell on earth in there um, yes, it was amazing. amazing to have and like five minutes from my sixth form college and all my mates used to come round and watch Twin Peaks and that on the orange semicircle sofa um, so that was a real privilege to have that and mm. it made me confident and by the time I was 19, 20 years old, and I was walking into, I guess, into the record company mm. with all these ideas. Um, I wasn't scared, you know, like I probably would have been if I'd have been at home with Nanny. Mm. You know, up until that point, I was like quite ballsy, and nobody really um, told me what to do. Even at that time, maybe I was even more intimidating than I am now. So you kind of um, immersed yourself in this local music scene. Um, when did you start 
having a go at music yourself after sort of falling in love with going out and being part of the scene? Oh, well, not in Manchester. Uh, the scene was, was really all about people who just loved it for me in Manchester. Um, although I did have some formative experiences. The first studio I was ever in was Strawberry Studio in Stockport, which was 10CC's studio had, had built. And it was just and still, I think, the most beautiful sort of space I've been in as a studio. It was perfect. All rosewood, as far as I remember, and just big central circular space with the control rooms and studios all off that. And oh, it was a magnificent place. And I went there because one of my boyfriends, uh, well, my main boyfriend actually that I had for years, not years, for about a year. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, <laughs> hip-hop and he was had his own studio under his house that he built with his dad by the time he was like 16 he had a studio so he was ace paid and he took me in there a couple of times and i met martin hannett in there one time um and i met um and i met, and I met um graham massey in there from 808 State, who was doing that project, another project, Bite and Tongs, which was great as well, actually. Um, but that was all before I even had an idea. I went for a walk to the chip shop with um, the A&R man of Lisa Stansfield, who was like the biggest thing at all at that moment. And um, when I came back to, to the studio with him, he said to me, you're going to be someone. I don't know what you're going to do. With, and that's not the only time that it's said to me. Actually, people still say it to me because I'm not famous. So if I go to a place and I'm dressed up, people are like, who's she? She must be someone. <laughs> She's got to be someone or be about to turn into someone. So I used to get that a lot without knowing what it is I was going to do. Anyway, that was the first studio I was ever in. But how did I get into music? I fell in love with a music producer who's 13 years older than me, Mark Ryden. And um, he had built a studio with his friends and kind of modern electronic music in mind, but it was still a big, massive studio. Proper, proper gear. It was fantastic. Oh, they based the control room on uh, Starship Enterprise. It was genius. It was a lovely place. <laughs> and, um, and... I met him in a party in Sheffield. I'd seen him the day before on a right fancy. And then I met him in a party in Sheffield and I went up to him because I'd been saying it that night. I had a tight sweater on and I was saying, do you like my tight sweater? See how it fits my body. It just became a thing I was really enjoying saying. So I said it to him and then, then I got chatting to him and he chatted me up and said, I've got a big studio, very large equipment. You can see it. It's empty tonight, you know, it was downtime. And that was all the original Maloco things were just downtime, you know. It would be actually at a party and I'd start mm. talking like I was from L.A. or something. And, oh, my God, look at all these party weirdos. And then we'd go from the party into the studio and record in the middle of the night. And um, it was really jokey at first and just novelty-ish and... Um, 
us a little bit reactionary, like we knew what we weren't going to do, what we didn't want to do, what was around that we wanted to avoid. Mm. I guess a lot of energy when you're coming up with ideas. Does me anyway. Um, and then we were just messing about and his, his manager took it to London and played it to a few people. And he got interest, and we just couldn't believe I could not believe it. I could not believe it. But there again, I, you know, I drove past the first uh, record company I've ever uh, signed to today. Uh, down, down in um, Latimer Road. And it was Chrysalis, the Chrysalis building. And um, I drove past today and I said, there's to the kids, you know, there's the first record <laughs> I was ever signed to. I said, and then I said, God help them. <laughs> they were really nice. They were really nice and softy bofty at, at Echo, you know. They just mm. did let us develop as artists, some kind of artistic idea that we didn't have in the beginning when we started. I mean, I wasn't even singing when they signed the, us to the deal. Mm. So, yeah, again, that was another great privilege was to be given two or three albums to develop. That might not happen these days either. Yeah. Um, so you kind of came into the industry side of music with your partner. Um, yeah. And I was wondering, would you say it was easier to navigate the music industry at that point with a man on your team? And did you notice that you were treated differently after you moved into doing your solo career? It was definitely good to have Mark on my side, whether or not it's because he was a man, but he was 13 years older. He'd been on top of the pops a couple of times with hits that he'd made. You know, he'd made records with all sorts of people and he was an experienced. It came down to saying to him, what the fuck are they? They want to sign us for a six album deal. You know, and this was based on me chatting shit and a few tracks that didn't even have me on. They're signing us as an act here. Six albums. Are you sure you want to do that, Mark? And Mark was so wise and he said, look, if you get six albums in your career, Roisin, something's gone very right. I don't think you have to worry about making six albums. And, and that's, that is the case. You know, you either, you either keep going or you don't keep going. So no, there's no worries there. And we moved forward. But I found it implausible that he wanted to, um, to do this with me. But I guess it was love thing as well, you know, and being together. And But also, you know, as I said, he had been on top of the pops. He'd been on top of the pops with same as Parrot, with tracks that were very early adopters of kind of the house import sound. And they knew what they were making. But when they had the hits, they had the hits in a world where that was just seen as novelty music. So it didn't really get seen as something that you would put money behind to make albums and make live shows with. And the people didn't know how to remotely relate it to shows, putting a show on, you know. Mm. So, and then it was also seen as a novelty, really, that it would just come and go and fade away. And no matter what they knew about it or didn't know about it, that was what it was seen like, especially once you were in the top 10 with something like that. So I guess he'd been burned a few times with that type of thing. And then just before that, he'd done a record that was an acid, that was on acid jazz, and um, but it was a like jazz funk record, really good. And he put like a year of his life into it, 
And when he really started to work, Mark Bryden, he just would work 14 hour days, you know. So he killed himself making this magnificent jazz funk record. And then that came out and they hadn't cleared a sample. And within days it was had to be deleted. So that was what I was walking into. That's the life I, that's the, what had gone on. And they on and everything out of, out of signing check to, to NCA years ago, the first farm. And that had done so well, they were able to then build the second farm. That all went hand in hand with these records that all of them were putting out and making hits and stuff. And those, all those early warp records were made in Fawn. Fawn was built partly by um, Rob Gordon, who was one half of the first record that ever came out on Fawn, the first few records even, and inventor of that whole bleep thing, sound, Sheffield, dark, thudding, sort of cellarish techno that they do that's really funky. Mm. I know I've not gone off piece, haven't I? What am I? What were you like? <laughs> I was just wondering about navigating the music industry. So you were in a duo. Yeah, so he was also, but he was really um, intimidating, Mark. Very without himself even knowing. Mm. Very northern from Sunderland, and so real fish out of water down here, you know. And he's really quiet and. Uh, you just don't fucking mess with him, you know. So, <laughs> so between him and me being like as fierce as I was, I don't think there was any any issue whatsoever with that. And there never has been in my career. Mm. Um, there's been disappointments where, for example, when I made Ruby Blue and and they tried to change gear and it, really too late also because they weren't involved in, the record was made when the label started to talk to me about what kind of solo record i should make you know i'd just gone ahead and made a record with matthew herbert which was in the gut now even if they had told me what to do before obviously i wouldn't have done what they told me to do i still made the record with matthew which i had had him in mind for a while before it ever broke up in Maloco, I'd met Matthew, having, he'd done a few remixes and um, I met him at a brilliant night where I sang with Jamie Liddell at the end. And that was a mind-blowing night too, actually, and Jamie really uh, showed me something about showmanship that night. Uh, mind-blowing, like he came out on stage, he ran out on stage, covered in cassette tape like for thousands of yards of cassette tape all like it looked like a big furry monster but when you got close it was like he was covered in like cassette tape the inside of cassette tape amazing and we did a version of um once in a lifetime together and it was ace and, and matthew was djing that night and he said to me and it was probably about five years before the end of maloco one day we have to make a record together and so he contacted me um, after I finished touring Maloco and I was seeing a, briefly a guy called Johnny Rock. He's a really great DJ and makes fantastic edits and music and so on. 
and thankfully I was seeing him because um, he really talked me into it. He was really like, because I was really like, what am I doing? Should I even do music anymore? And he was mm. you, are you out of your mind? You've got like Matthew Herbert, go, just go and take your call. Sure you do that? And I was like, okay, I mean, yeah, you're right. I'd really like to do it. But it was shit scary. But thankfully it was him because he was, he's so, um, he's so, Paternal in a way, and his way of working, of taking the found sound, and he took me as as found sound. He took my whole life as found sound, and he took it on on simple terms. You know, he was like, "I love the sound you make. I love the hums you make. I love the sound of you dancing, the sound of you running down the hallway, the sound of the stuff that you bring in that means something to you." I can make music out of all of that. And so then when I started to sing and have melodies on top of it, he was just fucking very, the whole thing was just so encouraging, you know, it was just, and also how good is that? Your first solo album. And it's like Matthew Herbert with a, a magnifying glass, like an audio magnifying glass on you. So really it's a Roisin Murphy record because it's a study of the sounds that I make. Mm. So very meta, Roisin Murphy record in a sense. Yeah. Um, Just because you mentioned the... um... The label was, that's the wrong record after I made it. That was a disappointing time. Right, yeah. And maybe there was some dissonance there, like, oh, you know, she should sort of bring Boris to Lugosh now. What's she doing? And I was surprised... But I'll never be surprised again in that way. You know, I was mm. just naive. Like, it had never happened before, ever. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, my reaction was off the scale. Like, I, I was thunderous about it. And because um, I wasn't prepared for it. They really had been quite paternal, the label as well, all through the years. As I said, we were privileged to, to have the freedom we had. So it was a bit of a shock for them to say that and then to kind of make it difficult to put it out and to really promote it when they hadn't got a grip on how to PR something like this. So, but I went back to my same old musical director, Eddie Stevens, who'd worked with all the live stuff on um, Maloco. And I think looking at the footage that's available online, to me, that's the best live show I've ever done. It's really was what Eddie did, taking that electronic record, that record about sampling, really, and, and so on, and applying it to how he could do it, how we could do it live. He was really at the beginning of that as well. There wasn't much of it about, and he did it in such a complex and sort of big way, and it was brilliant. And didn't work all the time. It was really on the edge. And we also had the brass section because the brass was such a big part of that album. It's just magic, really, when I look back on it. It was a magical gig. So everything is like that in the career when I look back on it now. You know, there's been real difficult times, but you wouldn't have had it any different. You wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had it any way different. Mm. Such a good old journey. And um, you, sh- you shouldn't have to... You shouldn't expect not to have to fight for your vision. If you have a vision at all, then you will have to fight for it. Mm. 
if you're a void, yeah, okay, you can coast if you're a, if you're a, just a vessel or something. But there was never who I am. I just yeah. from that at all. Mm. Well, I'd love to hear more about your live shows um, because since we've been t- talking, two things have stood out to me. One was about you know, your parents bringing objects home and that kind of thing. And then one was about the cassette tape outfit. Um, so I just wanted to hear more about the process of creating a live show for you. Um, and, you know, what does that mean in terms of like considering the record as a whole, how big a part is playing live to you and these show ideas? Well, the, the longer you go on, the harder it is to decide what songs go in a set. Basically, that's really difficult now because everybody wants their favourite song off every record. And even if I only did one off every record, it'd still be too long for most sets that you could possibly do. Mm. So... I also have lots of long songs <laughs> part of it you know certainly with these parrot productions um they're they're stretched out they're, they're stretching out grooves you know and uh, you do have to go there a bit as well live so it's really hard to sequence as you get along in your catalog you know or in your career and um, it was always awkward i mean from the beginning to when we did Tight Sweater, the first Maloko album, to make an electronic record, a studio record, and um, make it into a live thing. We'd no experience of such a thing, either of us. So we hired all these guys from Sheffield, and it was really good, the first few shows. Totally nothing like the record whatsoever, like a dub punk funk version of the record very punk uh, i used to come out on stage with a dog collar on and a bone in my mouth and get into a dog basket and sing from there <laughs> we did have a couple of christian drummers i think along the way they were a bit upset about that but anyway the point being is the first gang were from sheffield but it was it was zero like the record and in the end you've got to somehow bring bring the two things together so Everyone said to us in the label, okay, you need to get professionals in. You need to get session players that can really take those parts and we can nail it back to the music that we're, we're talking about. So that was a good idea and it needed to be done. And we went there, but then it became really dry. It was like we didn't have it that way around either. It was close enough to the record, but not really. And it was very dry and very like muso-ish and... And I was odd on it, you know, and I didn't know what to be anymore. I didn't know to be this vamp, um, crazy, suish, I guess I was initially when the first performances of Maloko, I was very angular and um, and so on. So, so, but I didn't know what to be on it when it was all jazzed up. And um, so it was, it's always awkward to, to take an electronic based record or whatever the avant-garde record even and and take it live there's all you're always using studio techniques that just aren't there live there's a different a whole different thing especially with the band mm-hmm. i love the energy of having a band i love it so i'm not about to give that up anytime soon so 
it's always awkward. But uh, once we had Eddie Stevens in at, for the second album onwards, things started to fall into place. He just shipped us up, ship shape. Um, he got us, you know, doing transitions, changing arrangements, thinking about the sequencing of, the, of it, thinking about performance elements that happen every time at the same time, not always exactly the same, but, you know, and structuring a set and taught us how to have a good time. So, so, so I think we got to a point where it was like, okay, we work really hard because when, when you first start touring, you can't believe you're expected to do it. You cannot. You are like, okay, so I have to perform tonight and I have to do interviews all day and then I have to get onto a bus and um, sleep moving on the bus and get up the next day and do it all again. And you've got to slip some drinking in as well, obviously. It's like, it's, you just, it's a massive shock. So, but when Eddie came on, I think he showed us that if you work hard, you can play hard. So if you really fucking are doing great shows, then by all means, you should have a few drinks afterwards and have a really good laugh. Because actually, it's the only thing that will give you the stamina to get through it. It has to be a laugh. Mm. Um, well, I mean, there's some people who can do it. You know, Liam Gallagher does it where he just, he's not, he's not a teetotaler or anything like that, but he is when he's touring. Yeah. And he literally walks off the stage, walks down the steps and what uh, gets into a car and goes back and chills out at the hotel because otherwise it's going to come up against having to have some fun. Because it is hard to it is hard to land like from the aeroplane down from a show. But my thing is moderation. I think you've got to have a massive laugh, you know, so I'm quite happy to have a massive laugh on tour and mm. really hard. And not really factoring sleep too much. This might be a difficult question, but do you have a particular on-stage outfit that is like extremely special to you? Yes. Um, a thing that was sent to me from Australia by a guy called Jeb Gendermess, who's a performer, and he made a huge like Yeti bodysuit thing and it's just all made of like strings of tinsel it's the most extraordinary thing if you move it all the like bits go it's like almost looks like slow motion under the lights on the stage and it's really proper club kid gear it's proper gear all handmade hand stitched it's incredible it's a real work of art mm, amazing um, well, let's dive straight into hearing more about your new record. So um, before we talk about it, how would you say the pandemic and everything that the world's been going through this year has altered the course of the record? Well, it has a little bit, you know, um, as I said to you, even the fact that I didn't get on the plane to Ibiza might have affected it, you know, so it's got a slightly different record for it. Went up and down to Sheffield a little bit during the um, during the lockdown. That was weird, and you know, go through, travel through a desolate London to a desolate, empty um, St Pancras station, which is obviously glorious with the architecture. Empty. Get onto an empty train with your mask, 
travel up to Sheffield, get out of empty Sheffield, which is bleak enough anyway, to be quite honest with you, even without all this. And then walk up to the studio and then Parrot and Fat Dave in the studio with the black masks on, you know, and uh, he was very insistent that if I could, I could, I would go up and do the final vocals up there to get a very consistent vocal sound across the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Even though some of the vocals I did down here were probably usable, it was important to, um, to connect, I think. And um, everything went very smoothly. Perhaps it even suits Parrot, all that misery, that kind of having to wear masks and not touch people and stuff like that. <laughs> even suit them up there a bit. <laughs> and the current single, I think, is um, Something More which is written by Amy Douglas. Um, how and where did you guys meet? And like, what drew you to Amy and what made you want to work with her? Well, Amy has worked with Parrot as well on his solo album, I think. And so she was put in contact with me because she wanted to, she's a bit basically, and she wanted to do something with me. And so I met her last year at, coincidentally, at a, speaking event that um, Andrew Weatherall was speaking at uh, that was really nice and meeting her there and talking to her about music and seeing how passionate she is about music and how much she knows about music and she's got slightly different interests than me but really she knows a lot about it and um, I could sense that so I sort of felt like I'd met a a soulmate some, to some degree. And so I asked her to write me a song. I asked her to write it about wanting more and more and more and exponential need and so on. And pretty much overnight she had, well, she had a good handful of songs written for me, but this was stood out as the one that had to be done now anyway, whether or not I do other ones, I don't know. But this felt like I had to sing that song and... Um, and yeah, it's, I, don't, I love that song so much. She's so talented. I mean, she's a really talented songwriter. Mm. Um, do you reckon you'll get a chance to make um, music videos for the ones that are coming out on the album? Well, I did, I don't know if you know, I did these performances from this room in lockdown that were live vocal to track. Um, so live performances and a live take with my lighting man from from the live shows. Um, Tom was here and he was bouncing green light all over and our content. All. They're like little pop videos, but they've got this live element. They're like half and half. And I've done two more, but I did them in Ibiza. So the camera's now moving and we moved to the outside and I'm still alone i'm still a bit cooped up but i'm much more elemental and um it's more cinematic as the camera's moving and stuff still it's a live vocal to track performance so they're like it's interesting that they are pop videos they should kind of work almost like pop videos for the songs but they should have this feeling of a raw live performance mm. and um for now I think that's what people might want quite a different experience of making a visual accompaniment to one of your songs than you've had before I guess 
kind of like half being a rock star, half being a film star. It's different to being on stage. Obviously, you can get close to the camera. There's a more intimate level of expression in it. You're not so far away from me. Um, and I'm bringing you into my world too, you know, that something more one is in our house in Ibiza. So I'm bringing you in there into another kind of compound um, and another simulation because, you know, that's what it felt like in Ibiza this year. It felt like, oh, wow, because I was only there in kind of August time. Wow, this is like empty for August. It was like a simulation of Ibiza. But every now and again, you have this fizz, background fizz, something not quite right. And then you end up with like the Garda Seville with a fucking flash light in your face and a, and a machine gun looking at you. You know, so you go from the sublime, relaxed, most per picture perfect sunrise to like the police coming down here. So it was like Black Mirror. It was at, at times and fascinating. But because it was so clear of people, I really saw things and um, that I'd never seen before in Ibiza places and much more elemental time in Ibiza than you would have if you were tempted to say go party and or whatever. There was no temptation for that at all. So it was very, um, I went on holiday and I couldn't help myself by the end of it. I wanted to make these these videos. So it was like mm. usual with me ringing everyone. Now, now, now's the time, I'm ready. Come on, get me, get me a cinematographer, get me a sound person and we'll go. <laughs> we did it, great. Um, so we've had some of our subscribers along with us for this chat today. Um, so if any of you guys have a question for Rasheen, then please type it in the chat now and make sure that I ask it. Um, so we'll go to those audience questions in a sec. But before we do, um, Rasheen, what's your kind of aspiration for this record overall? Like what message would you hope to communicate to your listener when they like sit down to take the project in god i'm not good with like big broad messages you know it's not really about that for me that's why i'm so interested in disco and kind of club music because it can hold it's one sort of very mainstream genre that tends to have an ability to hold several emotions at once a lot of this has a, like a swell of euphoria in it, this music, but that it comes out of darkness. It doesn't, it's not in an obvious way. And mm. so my, my, all my work is about, never about one thing. It's always about a few things all at the same time. There's always loads of dissonance in what I do and from record to record and even within the record, even within the emotions. Disco is good at that. It's good at holding lots of feeling that can't contradict, you know, the feeling a song can be very, very personal, personal pain and anguish. But everyone is there together. And so then there's this unity in that personal feel, in those personal feelings. So basically mm. it's really good at it. Um, so I don't really have a message. I would hope. I think I think what what really is about this record is that the album is just one part of a bigger of the whole story. The album is a sequenced 
it was meant to be listened to in one go. You can skip through it if you like, no problem. But mm-hmm. nice in one go and it's one part of the story. The other part of the story, very important part, are all those crooked mixes. So every time he puts out a, a 12 inch, we've got five, six crooked mixes as well. And they're not mixes, they're versions really. Mm. Because the song's completely intact. Um, they're like they're like dubs of the original. And that's a lot to do with what this record is, that sort of that you know this this is not a finished product this is a thing that now can live on it can be mixed it can be dubbed out it can be extended it can be played on different kinds of systems it can there's different versions of the songs you know it comes from that the initial inspiration being like Larry Levan who was obviously inspired by the dub and um yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a dubbed out album and a dubbed out whole scenario, really, the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, I love that people can just carry on adding to what you've created in their DJ sets and it'll just well, that's how, from there. That's how it's, how it's been for a very long time. I mean, I when I went to Jamaica, been a few times, I really like it. Um, when I went one time and I was buying seven inches from my friend, DJ Winston Hazel from Sheffield, who was at the time and still does a bit, mixed mixing in versions, so B-sides of these dancehall tracks, but the ones that kind of would sound a bit more scientific because he was able to kind of mix them into the techno and the house and the dub techno that he was into at the time and create a kind of hybrid. Um, and that's one thing. And then, so when I went into the record shop to buy the £1.7 seven inches, um, the guy's playing me these seven inches and I'm going, it's for a DJ now and he, he, he wants it to sound scientific and and he goes, all right, and he play a version and you go, yeah, that's right, that sounds scientific, I'll take that one and then he put one on, sound a bit too organic or something and I'd go, no, it's not really. And then he'd like have a little, he was playing it on a little system like something you buy out of Argos in 1997. And he turned around the system, the set, the speakers, and he took the wires out of the thing and out of the tweeters and put them in the and switched the wires around, and everything just was in the mids and the and the high. And he looked at me then and went, "Scientific now," and I was like, "Well, yeah, actually, it fucking is." So stick that one in the pile. <laughs> so you know that attitude in, is very Jamaican that you know that the, the thing's not finished it's not even finished when it's finished it's when it's pressed on vinyl you know we could be extending it we could use two pieces of vinyl and we could play it differently through different EQs and uh, tweak the system differently and and the, hey Presto you've got a totally new thing and um, DJing is is that art form DJing is the art form of having all the bazillions and gazillions and frazillions of recordings available to you now at this time. Everyone has so much available to them. And um, it's like playing an incredibly complex instrument, really, when you think about it like that. Um, the best DJs are, are like that. 
Mm, for sure. Um, so before we go, we just had a question from one of our subscribers who sent it in advance. Um, their name is Tom. And Tom asks you, is there going to be a world tour next year? A world tour. A world domination tour. Um, this depend. It, yes, there'll be a tour if, there's, if we're allowed to have a tour. Uh, we are going to be um, making an announcement about the first show very soon. Well, Rasheen, thank you so much for bringing us into your world, your home today. It's been really amazing to chat to you. So thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely. Take care. Thank you.